Marcus Antonius, known to modern-day English speakers as Mark Antony, was a guy who had a lot going for him. As one of Julius Caesar's right-hand men, he had helped the future Roman dictator conquer Gaul, stood by him as he defeated his rivals in a bloody civil war to control Rome itself, and served him faithfully in a position of high authority once his power was secured. When Caesar was assassinated, Antony's power actually increased. He and two other generals met an army led by Caesar's assassins, who hoped to restore the power of the Roman Senate at a place called Philippi near Macedonia. After a bloody struggle, Antony and his allies emerged victorious. An uneasy peace settled in. Antony and his co-generals eventually ended up sharing power. Antony ended up in charge of the eastern half of the Republic's territory, prosecuting Rome's war against the Parthians. While he was there, he adopted eastern customs and made friends with a few client monarchs of Rome, including King Herod the Great of Judea and Queen Cleopatra VII of Egypt. He was rich and powerful and, it seems, even lucky in love. Eventually, he and Cleopatra struck up an affair, which sounds really sweet on the surface. They even ended up having three children. Ah. The downside is that Antony was already a married man, and the woman he was married to happened to be his, the sister of one of the other conquering generals. That man, Octavian, had been busy during Antony's absence from Rome, eliminating all of the other rivals to replace Caesar but Antony himself. Antony's dishonoring of Octavian's sister, combined with the smear campaign which basically accused him of going native, a huge faux pas among many Romans, was enough pretense for Octavian to have the Senate declare him an outlaw. The eastern and western halves of the Roman Republic were to wage war, and that division would linger underneath the surface long after the scars of battle had healed. Eventually, the two armies met at a place called Actium in Greece. This time, Antony wasn't so lucky. Octavian's forces managed to outmaneuver his own, and Antony's only option was to flee by ship to Egypt with Cleopatra. When it became obvious that Octavian's troops were closing in, Antony committed suicide, dying in Cleopatra's arms. She eventually did the same. Their children were captured by Octavian's forces and sent to be marched through the streets of Rome in a triumph. That is, a victory parade in Octavian's honor. The trip back to Rome took a while. While Octavian slowly made his way there, messengers were sent throughout the Republic slash soon-to-be empire to proclaim Octavian's euangelion, a word we translate as gospel or good news, that he was the one who had brought peace to the Roman world. Soon after his victory, he was given a different name by the Roman Senate, Augustus, or revered one, and declared emperor or sole ruler of Rome. He took on Julius's last name, Caesar, which would end up becoming a sort of title that other Roman emperors would end up adopting. The social media of the day was all about Augustus. A stone inscription found on a Roman building in Asian Minor describes Augustus Caesar as the beginning of the good news and as a god manifest. A document called the Prean Calendar declared him savior. And since his adopted father, Caesar, had been declared a god, Augustus began telling anyone that would listen that he was the son of a god. 
The Romans even began saying things like, There is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved than that of Caesar. And it went without saying, but they said it anyways. Caesar is Lord. It was Augustus who ruled Rome, and by extension a recently added Roman province called Judea, with its tiny little village called Bethlehem, when, according to Christian tradition, a poor Jewish woman gave birth to a poor Jewish boy whose followers would proclaim a different kind of euangelion. Their gospel would proclaim that Jesus was a Savior who was also the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, and King of the world. They would offer an exciting alternative to the Empire of Rome, the Kingdom of Heaven, They would say seemingly countercultural things like Jesus is Lord and there's no other name under heaven by which one can be saved than that of Jesus. Caesar Augustus may have only been mentioned once in the New Testament, but Antony and Cleopatra's conqueror wasn't just an important figure in world history. He was also an important figure in the development of a faith that was about to take the Roman world by storm, Christianity. Welcome to Post Biblical, the podcast that asks the question, how do we get from Jesus to here? I'm your host, Jonathan Kleinsmith. This is the part where I declare my biases. I am a Christian and a pastor, and this Jesus stuff isn't just interesting to me, it's life-changing. But the purpose of this podcast isn't for me to proselytize or make converts, it's to educate. And I'm no expert, more of an advanced layman at best. I'm hoping to learn a few things along the way. So whether you're Christian or atheist, Jew or Gentile, Episcopalian, or just go to the church with the best communion bread, I hope you get something out of this podcast on church history. A reminder, this show will usually be split up into two main sections, an opening narrative describing some element of church history in a hopefully unbiased way, and the potluck, where I will have conversations with expert guests and discuss the implications of what we just learned. During the potluck sections, my biases are more likely to shine through So if you just want pure history, feel free to stop listening once the narrative portion is finished. So sit back, relax, and let's dive into some church history. Today's episode is a little all over the place in terms of narrative, so hang with me. We'll talk briefly about Herod, talk a little bit about the Pax Romana, and then do a crash course on what Judaism looked like in the late 1st century BCE and the early 1st century CE. I know that sounds like a lot, but for once we'll be covering just a few decades instead of centuries. So here we go. When last we spoke, the Romans had just arrived on the scene, using a flimsy excuse to depose the last of the Hasmonean kings and annexing Judah, eventually appointing a local strongman named Herod to be client king there. A quick note here, if you've been following along, you'll notice I've been referring to the Jewish kingdom as Judah up to this point, but we'll now begin calling it Judea. The terms are somewhat interchangeable, but generally Judah is the name for the kingdom during its years of independence, and Judea is the name we call it once it becomes a client kingdom and then province of Rome. Anyways, Herod, who was said to have been Mark Antony's lifelong friend, got involved in the Roman Civil War and ended up fighting on the losing side. His throne, which he only had by consent of the Roman authorities, if you'll recall, was in jeopardy. But Herod was a crafty man. So in 30 BCE, he hightailed it to Rhodes, a Greek island in the Mediterranean where Augustus happened to be hanging out, and did his best to patch things up with the new Roman emperor. 
When pressed about his former loyalty to Mark Antony, he is recorded to have said, I hope the subject of inquiry will not be whose friend, but how loyal a friend I have been. Those are some smooth words right there, folks. And apparently it worked. The most powerful man in the world let Herod keep his crown. He ended up having a somewhat mixed reputation as king. Although the Roman authorities seem to have been mostly happy with him, outside of a short episode where he tried invading the neighboring Nabataeans without Roman consent, he was fairly unpopular with his own people. There were a few problems. The most glaring was that Herod wasn't technically Jewish. His mother was an Arab and his father was Iudemian, people who had been forcibly converted to Judaism by one of the Hasmonean kings a few decades earlier. He didn't always show much respect for Jewish beliefs and customs, even allowing a Roman eagle standard to be posted directly at the entrance of the temple at one point, which led to a riot. Another problem was his lavish spending. For sure, the Jews liked one of those projects. He completely overhauled and expanded the second Jewish temple, which, after being reconstructed during the reign of the Persians, had never really been restored to its former glory. The project took decades, but by its end, the temple in Jerusalem was considered an international marvel that impressed even the Romans. But Herod also built temples to other gods, and even built an entire city to honor Augustus. These projects, as well as his long reign, are part of the reason he got the moniker Herod the Great. But there's also a really good chance that they crashed the Judean economy. Certainly by the time Jesus became an adult, the economy had become severely depressed, and the heavy taxes Herod's Roman buddies imposed on Judea didn't help. But Herod's biggest character flaw was undoubtedly his cruelty and paranoia. Sources say he had up to nine wives. Several of those were killed by his order. He also had three of his own sons killed. And his brother-in-law. Brutal. Thanksgiving would have been really awkward if they'd had it back then. Augustus is rumored to have said that it was safer to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of his sons. And when the Jewish people protested or spoke against him or indicated in any way that they were displeased with his rule or the overlordship of Rome, he had no problem killing them either. So when the Gospels record that Herod sent soldiers out to kill all the boys born around Bethlehem immediately after a group of foreigners came to say they're looking for the next Jewish king, we can at least say with some confidence that the writers effectively captured the popular conception of Herod's character in his own day, even if we are unable to verify the action itself as historical fact. Herod was a sort of transitional leader. The last of the Hasmonean kings, Hyrcanus II, had been downgraded from full-on king to ethnarch, a sort of mid-level ruler of a group of people under Roman authority. When Hyrcanus was eliminated, Herod's father Antipater ruled as a Roman procurator, basically a military governor in charge of collecting taxes. Herod looked destined to do the same, but was able to sway the right people at the right times to be made into a full-blown client king. He was still beholden to the Roman authorities, but he was more than an ethnarch or a procurator. At least in appearances, Herod was a legitimate ruler. His sons would not inherit his titles. So when Jesus is born, probably within a couple of years of Herod's death in 4 BCE, it's into a semi-independent Judea ruled by a client king. But by the time he's crucified somewhere between 27 and 33 CE, Judea is almost completely in Roman hands 
Herod's sons having reverted back to being tetrarchs, which is a government station even lower on the food chain than the ethnarchs were, each nominally ruling only parts of what had been the Jewish kingdom. Herod, his sons, and the Roman procurators and prefects who held the office of governor all, at least in theory, shared governmental responsibilities with another group, the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is one of those Bible words that never really gets explained to us, but a good way to think of it is as a sort of Jewish council that had nominal judicial and legislative powers throughout all of Judea. There were also a few smaller Sanhedrins spread out throughout other Jewish cities, which is why the one in Jerusalem is sometimes called the Great Sanhedrin. The local Sanhedrins were usually made up of 23 members, while the Great Sanhedrin would meet with up to 71 members. The Sanhedrin wasn't unique in the ancient world in terms of having a ruling council to help administrate a kingdom. But what made the Sanhedrin really different was its makeup. Most ancient councils were made up of members who belonged to the nobility or the aristocracy, but because of Judea's unique history, it didn't really have nobility. And the aristocracy was made up mostly of priests, scribes, or interpreters of Jewish law known as rabbis the Hebrew word for teacher. For this reason, the Sanhedrin would often deal with religious questions in addition to legal disputes and nationwide lawmaking. Towards the end of the Second Temple period, the time in which Jesus' ministry took place, the great Sanhedrin was fairly evenly divided between two Jewish parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. If you haven't read any of the New Testament, I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. Jesus' teachings end up getting him into conflict with both of these groups. But first, I think it's important to highlight what these two groups, and indeed nearly every Jew, held in common. It's important to remember that Judaism wasn't a static religion in the first century. In fact, there wasn't a single Judaism, there were multiple Judaisms. But they all seem to have had three things in common. Number one, they were all fiercely monotheistic, meaning they only believed in and exclusively worshipped one god. This set them apart from the rest of the Roman Empire, which was both pagan and extremely pluralistic. Number two, all Jews seem to have clung to the idea of eschatological hope. I know that's another big theology word, so let me break it down real quick. The word eschaton means last or final in Greek. So eschatology is the study of the end times, and eschatological hope is the hope that God is ushering in the end times. In first century Judea, many groups latched onto the idea of the coming day of the Lord. This wasn't as spiritual of a thing as many modern Christian groups make it today. In fact, many Jewish groups interpreted the day of the Lord to be a day when Yahweh would literally come himself or send a personal champion to lead armies against Yahweh's enemies to fight them in battle and to liberate God's people in this world. In this sense, the end times to a first century Jew wasn't about going to heaven as much as it is about setting the earth right. This anticipation of the coming day of the Lord led to and was further influenced by a new type of writings called apocalyptic literature. Some of these books, like the book of Daniel and after the church gets going, the book of Revelation, will end up becoming a part of the biblical canon. But a lot of others didn't, like the Apocalypse of Abraham, the Apocalypse of Adam, the Greek Apocalypse of Baruch, the Syriac Apocalypse of Baruch, the Greek Apocalypse of Daniel, the Apocalypse of Elijah, the Greek Apocalypse of Ezra, Gabriel's Revelation, Apocalypse of Lamech, the Third Enoch, 
the Apocalypse of Moses, the Apocalypse of Sidrach, the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, the Apocalypse of Zerubbabel, and the Aramaic Apocalypse. Anyways, as you can see, the Day of the Lord was a big thing in the time of Jesus, and people liked writing about it. The third thing all Jews had in common was a high regard for their holy texts, although it seems some books were held in higher regard by certain groups than others. So when the Sanhedrin comes together, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, at least on some level, had all of these things in common. But there were other points on which they disagreed. And even though they were the two mainline parties, the elephants and donkeys of their day, if you will, they were far from the only Jewish groups operating during the period of the Second Temple. The Sadducees were ostensibly the most powerful Jewish group during this period. Their name may be related to Zadok, the high priest to serve in the original temple according to the biblical books of 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, or it may be related to the Hebrew word for righteous. Either way, they controlled the temple during the time of Jesus and were the Jewish religious groups most connected to the Romans. They were seen as being more in favor of Hellenization than the other Jewish groups. They tended to occupy the upper stratus of Judean society, both socially and economically, and the majority of the high priests of the late Second Temple period were Sadducees. They were the group that had the most to gain by maintaining the status quo. The Sadducees were considered to be very conservative in their interpretation of Scripture, and they considered the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible containing the Law of Moses, to have more authority than the other biblical books. Take that, Ecclesiastes! They also didn't believe in angels or demons or hell or even heaven, and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead either. A joke my humanities professor liked to say was this, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Get it? Sad, you see? Get it? Get it? There's no cool dad joke that I know of to describe the Sadducees' distinguished competition, the Pharisees. According to the late first century Jewish historian Josephus, the Pharisees were generally understood to be the party of the people by non-aristocratic elements of Judean society. But we should probably take this with a grain of salt, seeing how there's really strong evidence that Josephus himself may have been one. Their name comes from either Aramaic or Hebrew and basically means those who are set apart, which makes sense when you consider their religious convictions. They believe that the law of Moses, even more so than the temple, could make you holy, i.e. set apart if it was observed well. Their origins are a little less foggy than the Sadducees. It seems that the Pharisees' rise coincided with the establishment of the Hasmonean kingdom in the mid-2nd century BCE. They probably started off as a small group of sages and scribes, eventually morphing into somewhat formal schools for theological education, led by renowned individuals known as rabbis. The Pharisees' interactions with Jesus in the New Testament are interesting as historical sources because, despite occasional conflicts, they often highlight shared beliefs between Pharisaical Judaism and early Christianity. For instance, the Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, believed in resurrection. When Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, he isn't knocking them for being unrighteous. He's choosing a group that would have been known for its righteousness. Even many of the disagreements he has with the Pharisees seem to have more to do with how close they are to lining up with Jesus' beliefs or ethics instead of how far off they are. 
The Pharisees would often be the group in charge of synagogues, local Jewish meeting places primarily used for discussing the Torah, because of their high regard not just for reading scripture, but interpreting it. When the second temple ends up being destroyed about 40 or so years after Jesus' death, the Pharisees become the dominant force in Judaism because they are already present in the synagogues throughout the entire Roman world. This is remarkable because every other Jewish group from the period almost completely died out. Modern mainstream Judaism was founded by the Pharisees in a lot of ways. There were other Jewish groups that were influential not because of their political affiliation with the Roman Empire, but because of their active resistance against it. We know there were probably multiple groups like this operating by the first Jewish war in 66 CE, but the Zealots are one of the few we actually know anything about. Josephus tells us that the Zealots were founded in 6 BCE as a response to the Roman Empire issuing a census. Hmm, census in Judea. I wonder why that sounds familiar. Anyways, Zealot is a name that we got from the Greek word zelotes, but they probably would have called themselves the Hebrew word kanaim. Both words connote the same general meaning in this context, one who is impassioned to the point of extremes for God. According to Josephus, they were very similar to the Pharisees in most of their beliefs, but there was one thing that set them apart, and I'm quoting here. They have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. End quote. They couldn't have been big fans of Rome with that kind of attitude, and Rome wasn't too fond of them either. The Zealots were a fan of open revolt and wanted a military revolution to cast off the chains of Rome. In 66 CE, they would help jumpstart a Jewish revolt against Rome, which would eventually lead to a devastating Jewish defeat and the destruction of the Second Temple. One very interesting disciple of Jesus that the New Testament mentions is Simon the Zealot. Scholars are divided as to whether he had formerly belonged to the Zealots or was just labeled as a Zealot because he was really passionate about his faith. Or because it's an ancient language we're talking about, some people say you can translate Zealot as Canaanite. So it's complicated, but it's intriguing to contemplate. Another group, possibly a spinoff of the Zealots, were the Sicarii. These guys were less like armed revolutionaries and more like straight-up terrorists. The term Sicarii comes from the plural of the Latin word Sicarius, or dagger men. They would roam the streets of Jerusalem with their curved daggers, assassinating not only Roman soldiers and functionaries, but also any Jews they felt were guilty of too closely associating with them. These violent groups don't factor directly into the narratives about Jesus given to us in the New Testament. But knowing that they were out there doing what they were doing helps us to understand a lot of the more mainline Jewish leaders' actions when it came to determining Jesus' fate. They helped turn Jerusalem into a powder keg waiting to explode. The last Jewish group we're going to talk about, the Essenes, aren't even mentioned in the New Testament, technically. At least the Zealots had Simon as a possible member. But near-contemporary histories like that of Josephus, Philo of Alexandria, and Pliny the Elder are pretty clear that after the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Essenes were the third most influential religious group operating in Judea during the Second Temple period. Their origins, like a lot of ancient religious groups, are a bit shrouded in mystery. There is some speculation that they may have been an offshoot of the Zadokites, who were the precursors of the Sadducees, 
who began a protest movement because they felt the priesthood wasn't pure enough. One working theory regarding the origin of their name is that Essene is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word osi haTorah, or observers of the Torah. This theory makes sense when you consider their name for non-Essenic Jews, breakers of the covenant. I guess with all of that information in hand, it's not a big leap for us to see that purity played a major role in the life of the Essenes. Ritual bathing was a staple for them, as it was in many of the other Jewish groups at the time. But the Essenes took it to a whole new level, even going so far as to say that anybody who took one step outside of the community needed to be bathed. They lived in small groups within Jewish cities or as monastics in communities on the edges of the wilderness near the Dead Sea, south of the Jordan River. Just as there was no such thing as static Judaism, there may also have been no such thing as a static Essenism. In fact, the Essenes we talk about might just be shorthand for a whole myriad of groups who observed a similar set of practices. We know there may have been a plurality because one ancient source describes them as being all male and not entering into marriage or having children, while another ancient source says that they married and had kids, just like everybody else. The Essenes are noteworthy for a couple of other reasons. One is their high regard for scripture. The Dead Sea Scrolls, a collection of hundreds of pre-first century biblical documents found in a cave near the Dead Sea, were found at a place called Qumran, which was most likely an Essene outpost. They collected every text they could find, it seems, and even wrote a few of their own. Another reason they are noteworthy is because unlike some of the other Jewish groups of the time, they had a fairly well thought out idea of who the Messiah was going to be. They called this guy the teacher of righteousness, and the parallels between him and Jesus are very interesting to research. Give it a goog if you have time. These scenes had a serious distrust for foreign influence, and one of their holy texts even drew up a battle plan for how their forces needed to be arrayed to fight the ungodly on the coming day of the Lord. We don't know if they ever got to use them, or how well they worked if they did. In 66 CE, just a few decades after Jesus' death, the Jewish powder keg finally exploded. The zealots led the rebellion, other Jewish groups joined in, and Rome had a major fight on its hands. They gained their independence for a couple of years, but it wasn't to last. At the end of the day, Roman legions came in and wiped everybody out. And none of these major groups, save one, the Pharisees, was left standing. But a minor Jewish group, whose founder and Messiah had already been executed by Rome, was about to emerge. They would end up turning the Roman Empire on its head. Too bad Mark Antony wasn't around to see it. Okay, we made it. That wasn't even a full century worth of stuff. Anyways, now it's time for the potluck, where each episode I will invite an expert guest to discuss the topics brought into focus by the opening segment. FYI, if you're not part of a Christian church and are wondering what the heck a potluck is, I'll just say real quickly, it is the most wonderful Christian tradition where everybody brings food and enjoys fellowship around a common table. For us, this will usually mean eating some... uh, pretty decent food, and having some rad discussion with our guests. Today, our guest is agnostic Hebrew Bible scholar Moses Dupree. He and I don't agree on everything, but I think having dialogue with those we don't agree with can be important in this day and age. 
and he has some important things to say. Feel free to give him a follow on Twitter. His handle is at I am who is Moses. But be warned, some of his discussions are political in nature, and he doesn't mind cursing every now and then. So, all right, here we go. Yeah. Uh, that uh, noise you heard was Moses Dupree, our special guest today. He is drinking uh, Mountain Dew. So, uh, Moses, you are a self-described, uh, taking this off your Twitter bio, which yeah. is 100% uh, accurate at all times, but uh, you describe yourself as an agnostic Hebrew Bible scholar. Yeah. What does that mean? So, um, I grew up, uh, my grandfather was a Methodist preacher in Kentucky. Um, uh, was a preacher for uh, 40 or 50 years. Um, graduated from... Asbury Seminary in Asbury, Kentucky. Yeah. For those, if you're not familiar with the whole seminary. And, but Asbury's a, a pretty big seminary school in the Methodist Church. And um, so, but I told Jonathan the story on the way over here. Um, and I never really, like, was crazy about Christianity. I wasn't a Bible thumper, you know. I didn't have a cross in my backpack you know, walking to Jericho, you know, growing mm -hmm. up. <clears throat> but when I joined the Air Force and got stationed here in um, Oklahoma City at Tinker Air Force Base, um, I was working, actually, was, I was already out of the Air Force. I separated, and I was going to OU for religious studies, and I was working on my senior paper. Um, like I said, I think it was over the Sermon on the Mount, the Jesus is preaching in Matthew, um, his one of his five sermons. But I had the TV on to MSNBC, and I saw this, uh, and the news story was this Waco uh, Baptist preacher out of this big outdoor revival in Texas. I think it was in Waco, uh, but it might have been somewhere else in West Texas. And he used that verse um, where Jesus says, you know, I don't bring the word, or I bring the sword in my mouth or something like that. Right, right. And he took that one verse. Re Revelation 1, I think. Yeah. Verse, yeah. And, no, well, it's actually, it's actually in. Matthew. Oh, so, so yeah. Not, the, not the sword, the tongue. Of, yeah. But it's the, I come to, I didn't come, I come to peace, kid. But, but yeah, a sword, yeah. And, and um, so, and so, but he gave this whole sermon off that one little verse over why it's okay for Christians to kill Muslims. Ooh. Yeah. I was like, and I stopped what I was doing. I'm like, and they interviewed the guy and. And I just remember, like, I never heard my grandfather, you know, preach anything remotely close right. to, like, any type of hate. Yeah. You know, it was like, you know, what you expect, love and, you know, love your neighbor and, you know, help people out and just be kind to one another. But when I moved, like, to this part of the country, it was like a Pandora's box, man. <laughs> like, just every possible thing. I was like, but then I realized, you know, I really didn't know anything about the Bible even though I grew up in that um, environment. So I decided I went back to school, uh, got my degree in religious studies from University of Oklahoma. And then I went to St. Paul and got my master's in what theological studies with the emphasis on the, on um, biblical studies. And then even though it's not part of the master's, I say, you know, you know, I'm a Hebrew Bible uh, scholar because that's what I focus my biblical studies on. And I wrote my master thesis over um, Ecclesiastes. Um, so most of the Bible classes I took were over 
you know, books, and I'm using air quotes, of uh, <laughs> books of the Bible were, you know, you know, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, um, a few, a few others I can't think of. Of course, I forget. But yeah, so I have a pretty good understanding of the Hebrew Bible. And the Gnostic, you know, I really don't believe, you know, if, if there's a God or if there isn't a God. Because like, for me, you know, if you believe that there's one, you know, one, let's say, divine being is God. Sure. To me, then, okay, well, what about, is there a Mount Olympus of gods then, right? Sure, yeah. So you kind of have to open the door for, you know, well, people do that anyway because there's, oh, there's angels and there's demons and then there's this and yeah. the, there's the saints. And so pretty much just to keep me from the stress, I just say I'm agnostic. Because <laughs> so, that, that sounds like a very yeah. stressful belief system. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see uh, from your perspective. So I do need to make the, the podcast listeners know uh, – uh, Moses and I don't agree on everything. Exactly. Right? So I am a Christian pastor and obviously I have a different take on that, but I do appreciate your perspective. Well, I, I say like we might not agree like on theological stuff, but I think like on maybe like interpretation of the biblical yeah, text yes. and like, and let's say orthopraxy, you know, doing the right, right thing. Right practice. We probably like 99.9%. I think we'd agree. We just like, and this is why like, um, you know, for me, because like even that's why there's like a thousand denominations, right? Because not even Christians can agree on like go with Martin Luther's baptism <laughs> right. debacle, right? Or his thesis, or what? Even like the early days of, you know, um, hey, let's let's don't put the Hebrew scriptures in canon, right? And yeah. that and I forgot that guy's name, uh, Marcion, the Marcion, yeah, Marcion is, yeah. And like so he got kicked out of the church. So it's to, so, but <laughs> to me it's not a point like oh, does God exist or God? I, to me, I don't think God really cares in that sense if you believe he exists or not. I think more importantly to God is, you know, are you living? And I told Jonathan this is it's not that Jesus wanted everybody to be like Jesus. Jesus was just showing a way on how to live. Like, sure. can, can you live like Jesus or can you, you know, um, and my phone's going off in my pocket. So I'm kind of <laughs> distracted. But, um, yeah, so it's like, you know, what does Jesus say about helping the poor? Or let's say if, if he was alive today, what would Jesus say about illegal immigration? Yeah. And so on that on that on that stuff, that's where we kind of like we agree mostly. It's just like the let's say doc, doctrinal 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 yeah the doctrinal yeah, stuff yeah. the doctrinal stuff yeah uh, no I think that's good. So speaking of orthopraxy right right practice, uh, can you let the listeners know what did that look like for a first century Jew? Right. Well. And I brought, I, we actually was talking about a book, and I'll pull out my backpack, and it's not about first century, now I'm not an expert on first century Judaism, but, so I just want to make that clear, I don't have right, a PhD, right. I don't want to like, mislead anybody, but a lot of people like, and um, like to confuse, like, Judaism's been the same, you know, from, you know, 2000 BCE all yeah, the way up. Yeah, um, But the first century Judaism was a lot different um, today. So even the Judaism Jesus practice would be a lot different. For example, there was a temple. Yeah. So that's one big difference. Another big difference is a Passover. The Last Supper was not technically a Passover meal the way, you know, modern day Jews or even Christians would think of a Passover, right? Mm -hmm. um, also, today there's like, um, we have rabbis and, you know, the Pharisees were like the forerunners of the rabbis. Yes. 
but you also had the Sadducees, which mm-hmm. were like the temple authorities. But you also had a bunch of little offshoot groups that were associated with Judaism, like the Zealots. That, that just think of that. They would be like the military wing, like maybe uh-huh. mercenaries or guerrilla soldiers, right, fighting the Roman Empire. But you also had the Essenes, which they thought, you know, uh, the temple authorities at Sadducees, they didn't think they were conservative enough. Uh-huh. So that's why they went and they started their own community where their bathroom was actually located like 400 paces outside their, outside their community because anything, they were strictly about purity. Right. And just to give you an example of how pure the instincts thought they were or thought you should be, every time they left their community, even if it was to take one step, when they came back in, in their community, they had to take a ritual bath. Yeah. yeah. So every time they had used the thing, every time they used the bathroom, they had to walk like 400 paces or whatever. They actually measured it, however far away, uh, however far it was away. Then they had to come back and then like take a full blown bath. So, so, and also, you know, the concept of like uh, halakha, like the way like Jewish law, uh, the food law, kashrut, um, those wasn't set in stone either. Right. And so, I mean, in fact, you have like the, the Antioch incident with Peter and Paul. Yeah. And you even had like, well, should people be circumcised? And should do people, you know, need to convert to Judaism, then Christianity? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Today, like, you know, you have none of that stuff. Like, you know, to be a Jew, you could be, you know, a Rothfusterian <laughs> and go take Jewish classes and you can convert to Judaism, right? right. So I think, but I think the biggest difference is the idea of the temple. And like the authorities, like um, today we have the rabbis, but the rabbis really wouldn't have a hold the way like um, the Pharisees would. Because remember back then, like the communities were a lot smaller. Right. So it was a lot easier. But now, like with all over the world, you know, like I said, if somebody doesn't like, you know, their synagogue or church, they just go start a new one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They yeah. don't even get church approval or yeah, or what, Jewish approval. Who like, needs permission? Uh, yeah. Who needs permission? And so, but I think the big difference though would be um, the the uh, what is it, like uh, like the structure, the hierarchy of the polity, the polity, yeah, yeah, of of who's in charge. And you actually see this in the Gospels. So this is one way um, scholars debate when a gospel is written. So let's say if a gospel or any of the New Testament letters or writings focuses on the Sadducees then it's a good chance it was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 uh, CE or 70 AD for those who don't do the the Chicago-style referencing of history, mm-hmm. right? So after 70 CE, you had the rise of the Pharisees because now you don't need Sadducees because the temple's gone. So if, if there's a lot of focus on the Pharisees, then you could say, okay, this is probably written after 70 CE. Right. And that's a good start of... Um, you know, how people might start to date uh, like the gospel of Matthew or Luke or whatever. That's interesting. Uh, so the Sadducees are kind of um, like uh, then, well, even the name Sadducee is, is debated, right? It's sons of Sadic. Yeah. Uh, or they could say it's uh, kind of like the holy, like the holy ones. Yeah. Well, like it was like um, what the tribe of uh, Zadok. Uh, Zadokites or something like that. So so if you you go back to the Hebrew scriptures and I don't know if it's in, in, 
it might be in Leviticus where they sit out, okay, this group, this tribe is responsible for this. Yeah. This tribe is responsible for this and so forth and so on. And it was the Zadeks who were responsible for the priestly functions. Yes. And so now later on, they over thousands of years or whatever became uh, probably actually probably hundreds of years over centuries became Sadducees. Mm-hmm. And then they had like the formal garb and et cetera, et cetera. Now today, since there's no temple, that's another thing, clothing you don't have. Because there's actually, if you go pick up um, a Hebrew, English, Tanakh, uh, Old Testament, um, but in Judaism, the Hebrew Bible is also called the Tanakh. Um, in the, if you have a good one in the back pages, they lay, they'll lay out like the layers of the, the high priest's clothing. Right. Like his clown and then like his like his undergarments that he's supposed to wear. And then you had another layer of clothes and you had his big robe. And yeah, yeah. So there's like a big ceremonial display of even what to wear. Today, you know, you can just wear blue jeans and a t-shirt <laughs> if you so feel like it. Yeah. So it's, uh, it moves from sort of a, um, like Judaism moves, I mean, and again, like can't stress this enough to our listeners. There's no such thing as static Judaism. Uh, no, that, oh no! At, in the first century, especially there, there, and it's hard to say if there ever was, uh, really. But by the the first century, especially after seventy CE, when the temple is destroyed, uh, it moves away from this ritual system, uh, the sacrificial system, and it kind of becomes uh, right. Well, you you kind of uh, said it already. Like the Pharisees, they take the ball and they run with yeah. it, right? Because. Um, these guys are already in the synagogues. They're already, you know, out in the diaspora, and they have a voice. And the Sadducees kind of just fade away. Well, and that's why. Um, so the book I'm holding is called "Rediscovering Eve" by um, the biblical archaeologist Carol Myers, who teaches at Duke University. And even though she's in this, she's focusing on ancient Israelite women, mm-hmm. but she does lay out like um, what's going on in, in first century Judaism. So we think of the temple. But um, she makes the argument, and she's not the only one to make the argument, a lot right. of other scholars, that, but the temple was only ac- accessible to like a very few of the Jewish population, not everybody. So if you think, if you live 100, 200 miles away, you can't visit the temple every day. Right. And she makes the argument that, and we even see this in some of the Hebrew scriptures, um, that each village, not only does each village might have their own separate what they call God, like Yahweh sure. or, you know, Barney or whoever, <laughs> but even each household might have their own separate God that they worship. Yeah. Um, but the first term Yahweh is used is when Moses goes visit, uh, when he's exiled from Egypt, mm-hmm. he's on the lamb and uh, he, uh, Jethro. And that's the first term, first time in the Hebrew scriptures, you see the term Yahweh used. Mm-hmm. So it's a good, in Midian or Midian, uh, their God is probably Yahweh. Yeah. But the next village over, it might not be Yahweh. But somehow Yahweh became the predominant figure because it seems like that just kind of like took over. That was like the, okay, yeah, let's worship Yahweh. And everybody uh-huh. started worshiping or started calling God Yahweh. Um, so it would, so it's just not, so now today everybody just worships, let's say God. Right. So like today, for example, if you go to any uh, observant Jews household, they don't worship just any old God, right? Uh-huh. Back in the first century, that was that that's probably more the norm where you know you might worship, like I said, you might worship Yahweh, but then your your next door neighbors might worship Baal, right? That's just the way it was. And then that's why um you have thou shalt not worship 
or have any other gods before me. Mm-hmm. So just by the, and in the Hebrew, it's plural. Uh, the word God, Elohim is plural. So that just by using the plural, that suggests that other gods were being worshipped. Now, it doesn't say if that was a bad thing or a good thing, but in the eyes of Yahweh, you don't have other gods before me. Right. right? So I think, I think uh, so, but, so in Carol Meyer's book, she lays out like, um, also like, we got to think that um, in the first century, only about one to 5% of the people were literate, mostly males. Oh, yeah, yeah. So not, not. The uh, scriptures wasn't went wasn't written for necessarily everybody. So not everybody had access to the temple, or you know, or even their local priests. They might so they had to re- they strictly relied on, let's say, their local preacher, mm-hmm. which would be a local Pharisee or just could be a layman that knew the scripture. So today, you know, who I have two or three like Hebrew English Tanakhs, right? right or right, Hebrew right. Bibles. I have. Yeah, it's it's a. It's an embarrassment of riches. Yeah, I have a I have a Greek New Testament, so I could so pretty much if we want to learn a language, we, we could go learn it. Yeah. Back then, it wasn't so simple, and so back then it was more like who controlled this information, and mm-hmm. that's Pharisees and Sadducees. Right. Sadducees, this is what I say because, and most people didn't question it because they couldn't read, they couldn't write. Oh, okay, that sounds good. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Pharisees came along pretty much the same way. The law says this, though. And then, you know, but today you can, people can learn and you can disagree with your rabbi or your preacher if you want. You won't be excommunicated. Like (laughs) maybe a lot of times they were, you know, thrown out of the temple or something like that. So, so just even from, let's say, an educational standpoint, it's like completely, completely different. Um, Even the ritual, like I said, the sacrifices. Even uh, today, even within Judaism, you know, one of the arguments is if the temple is rebuilt, do they go back to animal sacrifices? Right. Does that become a thing again? <laughs> so some rabbis say no. Some say, rabbis say yes. So and that's why in one uh, movement of Judaism, the reform movement, which was started, I think, in the 1920s. And they still they call it the reform movement, not the reformed movement. Right. Because it's still changing. You're still uh-huh. reforming, right? So you're changing. So yeah. go back to your point about saying that Judaism is a, a static religion. Um, so, yeah, so there's a lot of lot of uh, differences. Even, the, like I say, even the Judaism Jesus would have practiced would have been a lot different than what, what's going on today. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, speaking of, of the idea of Christianity uh, kind of, emerging from judaism like how how do you think what do you think that looked like for the earliest christians how how were i mean we see in the book of and and, you know we have to take it with a grain of salt because we can't say that uh uh, from an academic perspective although i can say it from a perspective we can't say that like the book of acts is a a great historical source but it does give us an idea at least into what the mindset was between christians i think we we also i think that's we have to realize that they did history different than we did history. Sure, yeah. So to them, so I would say that as far as like, oh, you know, uh, Luke or Paul, then we're, okay, July 1st, you know, 19 or, you know, uh, but 78 CE, uh-huh. Paul's arrested by the Roman authorities. I'm on the lamb. You know, <laughs> right, right. You know they didn't write, um, they just pretty like, oh, we're going to this place today. We met with Lydia yeah, or yeah. whoever. Yeah. Um, Which, uh, uh, 
listeners of the podcast will know that uh, Lydia was in Philippi. Uh, we discovered yeah. that last week. There you go. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you do you do get some I sense of like some like I said the Antioch incident. Uh huh. Um, or even like Paul later on when you had these guilds like uh, you know do we eat the food that they serve us and Paul was like yeah just do it because we know we know deep down wink wink. You know who's right. Yeah. So so it goes back like they had like you know argue disagreements over food, which you still have today in Judaism. Like some Jews follow kashrut, the food law. Some don't. You know, it's just like whatever. You know, um, like should should we be circumcised? Right. That was another big thing. Right. right. And so and so like so you can see them kind of. So for, I think the Gospel of John kind of gives an example of what was going on where, you know, uh, over and over the author of, of the gospel um, says they kept kicking, kicking us out of the synagogues. Right. Right. So you can see what was probably going on. You had, um, and Jesus didn't go out to start a new religion, right? He, he didn't, sure. he didn't wake up at, you know, for my 16th birthday, I'm going to start a new religion. Right. Call, I'm naming after me, Christ. Right, I'll, right, I'll right. behold me. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, but what but but what happened is you know the followers of Jesus they was like hey I dig this guy's message and so they was going and preaching it and now Jesus wasn't really like he kind of challenged the authorities right he's saying sure. you yeah. don't need really need the temple right you know just you know um, the Gospel of Thomas says you can just look in, inside yourself and if you want to take that um, you know with the grain of salt and take it that he actually said it but. But you see that his message, when people try to spread that message through synagogues or, you know, the local temples, they were being kicked out. Yeah, there's some resistance. There. So you even had debate over, and we saw within Judaism, you still have debate debate over the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And they were like, hey, don't talk. He's not the Messiah. You know, the majority of Jews at the time didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. Right. So, you, so you, well, the, and the idea of Messiah is, well, they is did, different. Uh, like well, no, they're they expected a military leader or something like well, that. Well, you can see it. Like, actually, so here's a good trivia question. Uh, Jonathan will buy you a, uh, a swarmers if you get this right. <laughs> uh, yeah, just for, for the reference, we're eating shawarma right now. Yeah. That's today's potluck. Um, so, um, do you know the only mention of the Messiah in the Hebrew Bible? The only mention that of specifically the... uses the word Mashiach. Mashiach. Uh, probably, oh gosh, it's. Either in Isaiah or it's a reference to David. Okay, it's in Isaiah forty-five one. The king, uh, King Cyrus, uh-huh. is, yeah, is, yeah, is the, Persian, the Persian emperor that, that freed that uh, overthrow the Babylonians and let the Jews go back to their homeland. Right, he's actually referred to as as the Messiah. So in Hebrew, the word Mashiach just means anointed one, right? right. And so, like um, for people who might not be uh, familiar with how kings were christened or Back in the day, they would somebody sprinkle like oil on their head or something that they would be anointed. Yeah. So, so, so that's what, so just the word Messiah just means anointed one. So he could be a king figure or like a military king figure or just a military leader. Um, But the idea that the Messiah was going to be like some divine being, like God the man. Yeah. No, they would have totally disagreed with that idea. Yeah. And so, so when Jews or like, let's just say, say, well, they were Jews, but Jesus followers, when that sect of Judaism would go into the more, you know, uh, you know, orthodoxal places and say, hey, Jesus, he's our savior. Of course, they would have been kicked out. 
Right. Just imagine if, you know, me as an agnostic walked into, you know, Jonathan's <laughs> church and be like, hey, you know what? All you guys, you're completely wrong, man. Like, why do you believe it? Right? I'd be kicked yeah. out too, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I would, I would like to think we'd be a very loving and accepting place. <laughs> but you, but you get the idea. I do that, get it. Yeah, yeah. There, there'd be attention. Yeah, that, sure. and so that's why a lot of people think that the Gospel of John's um, probably the most anti-Semitic of the Gospels, because, and that's. It's been well, and he uses generic, such a like he uses the word the Jews, right? Yeah. Like it's but that's still like the, such a generic. Way but it's also, but like it. if you say that today, like if you heard, you know, so let's say Hitler say the Jews, compared to like you know talking you might hear or hear, listen to a rabbi say the Jews, you get like a different connotation. Yeah, there's there now is. over the years, like with white supremacy and you know uh, superstitionism, right? The Jews actually become like almost if, if you had to be careful. Now I'm comfortable saying it because you know I know all the rabbis, yeah. and so they use the word the Jew. So if you're not using it like in a menacing way, like, oh my God, look at Carol, she's a Jew, <laughs> right? If you don't do something like that, right, then I, I think it's acceptable. But a lot of people have used the Gospel of John to say, oh yeah, see, uh, Judaism, it's it's over and done with, right? And we the, we and, kicked him, and the Jews killed, Jesus. and the Jews killed Jesus, yes. Right. Oh, which kind of, uh, that's another way of uh, kind of letting uh, the people that really killed Jesus off the hook, the, the Roman Empire. So what happens when Rome encounters uh, encounters uh, Judah, you know, the, the Hasmonean kingdom for the first time? How does it shape Judaism? Well, I think, I, I, I think it actually, uh, I think it probably actually shaped Rome more than it did um, Judaism. Because Judaism, they... They pre so for example in um, the Rome fire, oh uh, under um, Nero, I yeah. believe it's sixty seven or sixty six BCE. Right, right. Nero actually wanted to blame the Jews, right? Uh -huh. But the Jews they were so situated already within the Roman Empire, like they've already been settled for so long that that actually the Nero's advisors advised Nero not to blame it on the Jews because they're like, look, everybody knows who the Jews are. Right. They didn't start the trouble. They don't start trouble. So who did they blame instead? So they blame, you know, Christians, <laughs> Christians right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't think it's so much. I think that's a testament to Judaism that Rome really didn't. So, for example, um, and this is like, uh, you know, you see this early, like early on around the first century is that when you became a subject of the Rome, you were required to go to their temple. Uh -huh. You had that you had your little card and say, yes, I worship, you know, Rome's God. You could have your own God, right? Right. But you just had to recognize Rome's gods were more superior than your own God. Right, right. Um, and that's why the early Christians were called atheists. Yeah. Because they wouldn't, they say, no, we're not allowed to have any images and we don't recognize your God. So Rome labeled Christians actually atheists. Yeah, that's that's a funny because they're like, well, if we history. can't. So how do we know you have a God if we can't see your God? Right. Which is like you can't see God unless you make an image. Right. Right. Um, but this, but the Jews, they didn't have to do that. Right? They, right. they were just like, you know, now, of course, when you talk about the Jewish leadership and you get into the politics. Right. Yeah. yeah and that's yeah. where it gets messy. Yeah. Because, um, like I said, uh, the temple leadership didn't necessarily represent all of the Jews. Like, like today, somebody might say, "Oh, well, this person doesn't represent all the Jews." Like, yeah. let's say Netanyahu, right? Right. You'll have you'll have a lot of American Jews say, "Well, he doesn't represent all Jews." Sure. And he yeah. doesn't even represent uh, Israel as let's say like the divine 
right of God. They say, oh, right. he doesn't re represent. So <clears throat> I don't think Rome really, because Judaism, you know, remember they survived, you know, the exile, the destruction right. of the first yeah. temple. And even then they still didn't, you know, cater to, you know, they still lived their own life the way, you know, the best they could. So actually I think Rome or Judaism actually affect, affected Rome more than uh, vice versa. Yeah. Um, so if you had to say, so we've talked about some of the differences between uh, first century uh, Judaism and modern Judaism. Uh, let's talk about early Christianity and, and modern Christianity. Have you noticed uh, it? What would you say? Cause we're talking about it, it sparking out of the Jewish movement. And and what are, I mean, I think, you know, just off the top yeah. of our head, we could both come up with a, a few of yeah. these. But what are some of the biggest differences between uh, how we worship Jesus today in the Christian church and how they, well, how they operated in the, I, in the first century? I, well, I'm going to say uh, modern day Jesus, he must have been a workout freak because he has great abs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if yeah. you see him on yeah, the, yeah. Um, but no, but I think, um Well, one, there's no Bible per se, right? This, right. The canon yeah. wasn't written. So I think when you don't have a bunch of authority saying this is what you have to believe in comes from this book, besides what we believe in. And I think you see this in early Christianity. I think there was a lot more variety with the Gnostics mm -hmm. and um, and other sects of Christianity that once, as you, you said, went on the right over here, once Constantine took over, they kind of squash all the low level or like the lower number populated um, Christian sects. Like, okay, you guys are done. Gnostics, you're done. Mm -hmm. And even within Gnostics, there's like three or four different sects of Gnosticism. Right. Um, and, and even like, even before this, even the split of the Eastern and, you know, Western Orthodox, the great schism, I say there's still a lot of like, cause you go back like, um, you know, there's a difference between like how people worshipped in Alexandria and how people worshipped in Antioch. Yeah. Even though it was still one church, you still had regional differences, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so even even back then, you could say they were still more um, fractional. Um, but I think I think probably the big difference is you don't. There was there definitely was no structure, right? Yeah. Like today we have the lectionary. Like pre, you go to church on Sunday. The preacher has, you know, this is year B or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's oh, it's um, it's a New Year's Day. So guess what? On New Year's Day, we preach from Revelation, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like, I don't know if y'all have actually seen the lectionary or no. Oh, yeah, no, we uh, we just uh, full disclosure to the listeners. I we preach the lectionary here. Yeah. Oh, so you actually preach from. Revelation twice a year, like a new well, year. you can pick that gives you four readings. <laughs> oh, yeah, so yeah, so but anyway, so I don't think there definitely wasn't this, there definitely wasn't the structure. Also, the uh, the big in the early Christians, right? They were big into martyrdom, right? Yeah, like they were they wanted to get themselves killed. Yeah. Uh, 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 Bishop Polycarp, right? Probably, like, if you for those who not doesn't know uh, Christian history, he's one of the few bishops who got arrested. He went to announce his faith, and he wanted to show, uh, show the world, hey, yeah, I'm look how big fan I am of you know Christendom, and uh, he allowed he allowed himself to be killed. But martyrdom, you know, like people wanted to die for their faith. Right. Um, I don't think 
I'm not going to say people don't want to die for their faith, but I don't think you see people going around today, hey, going over to China or somewhere right, else, right. like, hey, I'm a Christian, come kill me. Right, right. right. There, and there, there are some people out there that, uh, like, they've uh, definitely missed the part um, in John where um, Jesus prays, uh, if you could take this cup from me, Lord. Uh, exactly. Please do. But, right, but God, you, God, you know, at the end, Jesus says, Never, nevertheless, your will not mine. Um, but we skip that part and we just say, oh, let's go die for Jesus. Yeah. Right? Like living for Jesus is not a, an important thing too. But, yeah, and then I think to me, I think uh, if you ask Jesus, you know, it's living's more like he would say dying is easy, right? Yeah. But actually uh, this brings me a story from um, one of our fellow seminaries and we went to seminary together. Yeah. Full disclosure. We knew each other before the seminary. Um, at St. Paul uh, School of Theology. But I had a guy, you know, he's like, um, he's having conversation. Conversation. He's like, nobody. He's like, nobody can live like Jesus. It's it's too hard to live like Jesus. And I was like, well, that's the point. I mean, living like for Jesus, like it's hard. He, right. he, you know, Jesus didn't live in a seven thousand square foot house with air conditioning. Just and just he just he was just Jesus on Sunday, and then right, and then like on you know Monday through saturday he was bono right he was yeah. he was jesus full time and yeah and so i think um i think there's since it's been you know since uh, thousands of years i think that maybe the early christians probably had a better idea of how to live like for jesus than they do today i think well from my perspective i think a lot of christians are just lazy <laughs> and i think they really don't care about the message of Jesus because right. one that's a fault of their pasture for being lazy. Yeah. And I'm not saying, and that's not a, you know, a argument against, you know, Chapel Hill, or, <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, there's a lot, a lot right. of people, they just think, Oh, to be a good Christian, just go to church, you know, memorize a verse for the day. Yeah. And then Monday through Saturday, just, you know, I don't have to care about, you know, the needy or the, you know, the sick. I mean, and so that's why, to me, it's amazing um, throughout Judaism, and you even see this with uh, a lot of Christian theologians like John Wesley, a lot like a lot of Jewish theologians and a lot of early Christian theologians, they were also doctors. Yeah. They And John Wesley, you know, he went around preaching to prisoners in prisons. Yeah. And then he would go out and do his medical ministry. Right. Today, I mean, how many Christians actually go visit, you know, the sick and needy? Or, yeah. And so... Um, now, of course, it's, it might be a little bit harder because the way the prison system might be, right? Like full disclosure, they're just not going to let anybody go into a prison, right, right, or a medical environment without you know the proper background checks. But I think in the first century, I think a lot of people probably had a better understanding since they were closer to you know Jesus's life. Yeah, and then over years, it's just like oh, it's just kind of like you get in a routine, but. You know, today I worked out for 45 minutes and then, you know, next time you work out, it's only for 40 minutes uh -huh. and then it dips down to 30 minutes. Yeah. And then you're like, well, I can work out. I don't have to work out today. I'll go on three days from now. Yeah. And then before you know it, you stopped working out. Yeah. Right? And, and your, your version of, uh, working out is, is, uh, coming to church on Sunday. Yeah. So, <laughs> giving a large check. Yeah. And so, and I think if, you know, it's like, uh. And I think the whole, I think that's another thing. Money, I think has changed. Yes. Yeah. Has changed this church. Um, 
Because I think if you ask Jesus, what's more important? Because how many times did Jesus ever ask for money? Right. I mean, like, but yet, yeah. no, I'm not saying that churches, they have a budget and they need to be run and tired. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Jesus, he, when he went to, let's say, raise Lazarus, he didn't, you know, raise Lazarus from the dead and be like, well, let's take a talk about your payment options now, Lazarus. <laughs> right. He's just like, you know, there you're raised or like uh, the Roman soldier when he helped out the Roman soldier's daughter. Right. Yeah. That was paralyzed. He didn't say, well, you know, Roman soldier. I kind of don't like what you're doing. You know, maybe if you wasn't a Roman soldier, I'd help you out. Right. You know, so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I think even, well, back then there's a lot of judgment, but I think since now there's a formal church, I think there's also a lot more judgment about like who's us compared to them. Right. So if you're not part of us, you don't deserve our help. Right. Right. You you know? Um, And so I think, and you you, just, you still have that probably in the early days, but I just think over time, you know, time kills all, right? Over time, it kind of dilutes. And um, in fact, uh, it was I think it was the Presbyterians when we had uh, one of our professors who taught theology. Um, he gave a book over like their uh, mission statement, right, about how we change change our church. Uh-huh. And one one of the chapters they were actually talking about. We need to revisit Jesus's earthly ministry. Yeah. Right. They, 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 they realized they were so far away from Jesus earthly ministry that they forgot what it was or they didn't. So I think a lot of, a lot of Christians have forgotten Jesus's earthly ministry. Uh, so um, any final word, anything you'd want people to know about? Uh... I think, I think uh, for me, when I study the Hebrew Bible, now, I might be a rare breed, but I'm the type of one I want to learn. I want to know everything about, okay, why did Amos write the way Amos did, right? Sure, yeah. Um, a lot of people think that, oh, the Bible just fell out of heaven, or I can just, you know, open up and read a verse, um, and I know what it's saying. So I'll give an example. So a lot of people know the Adam and Eve story. God created Adam, took a rib from Adam, and gave it to Eve. Right. But the, he, but the Hebrew translation, and the word escapes me, escapes me now, of course, but it's a mistranslation. He didn't take Adam's rib. He took Adam's whole side. The Hebrew word translates to side. So just think if you have a model clay and you made a person out of that clay, and then you just took half that person, you made a new person. Uh-huh. That's, so it just wasn't a rib. It was a whole, So you have most like two compatible beings, right? Yeah. And so, but... To me, a lot of, but that's something if you don't study the text or completely understand it or, okay, so what was like first century Judea like? Uh-huh. I just don't think, um, if you really want to understand the biblical text and like the ministry of Jesus or just Jesus as a person, you have to, one, you have to understand Judaism. Yeah. You have to understand history. Yeah. Right. You even have to understand, you know, theology and philosophy. It's just not as simple as, oh. Well, you know, Jesus went to this place and, you know, uh, for example, another example, nowhere in the New Testament are the Pharisees described as bad people. Right. right? Actually, Jesus agreed with the yeah. Pharisees on a lot of yeah. things. But over time, somehow Pharisees are like have become these evil. So that's why it's important. No, like if you're around a Jewish person, 
don't call something Pharisaic or oh, he's just a Pharisee. Yeah. Because that's that's real offensive to like because they are Pharisees. Because because part. Pharisees were the forerunners of rabbis. There was yeah. nothing wrong with Pharisees. Yeah. They were just like interpreters of the law. Right. So so but that's something where like people need to understand like you know words and the history of you know what's going on because because you know Jesus Jesus you know his Judaism was completely different than you know Judaism in 2019 right yeah that's a good word well uh Moses thank you sir for being on the show uh I don't uh I don't know how many dozens of people will listen to this but uh, I'm really glad to have you um, if you you have a you have a uh, blog, right? Uh, I did have a blog. I've been written on it for years. I'm not going to. I'm not going to plug your blog. No, I'm not that's okay. Plug. I haven't uh, written on it for like I don't know four or five years. Fair enough, man. Well, uh, if you want to find some interesting historical research, but they can they can find me on Twitter. If you, I can plug, my yeah, Twitter. yeah, plug your Twitter, man. So my Twitter is um, kind of like since my name is Moses, is um, kind of playing off the uh, uh, Exodus thing. My Twitter name is I am who is Moses. I am who is Moses. Yeah. Yep. So um, you can find me on there and <clears throat> just, uh, but just to uh, forewarn everybody, I'm not a big fan of Trump. And I'm not necessarily <laughs> a big fan of uh, Nancy Pelosi or the Democrats either, but um, I'm really not a fan of Trump. So you're saying, you're saying some of your Twitter posts might be political in nature. <laughs> quite possibly quite possibly yes also uh also you might want to throw out an ex explicit uh language warning yes <laughs> yeah i'm like uh what the I'm, my twitter's nc17 yes yeah so well thanks man i really appreciate you being on no problem i had fun all right that noise means it's time for our non-book of the bible book recommendation Obviously, the name for this segment comes because as a Christian, I'm contractually obligated to recommend the Bible whenever the discussion of books comes up. So that's a given. But in addition to the Bible, you might find other books useful. And in preparing a podcast like this, I have to do a lot of non-biblical reading. So my recommendation this week is God and Empire, Jesus Against Rome, Then and Now by John Dominic Crisson. Well... It's time to say goodbye. Thanks for making it all the way to the end. If you like the podcast and want to make sure we make more, make sure to subscribe and go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Also, for podcast updates or just to send me hate mail or questions, follow me on Twitter. My handle is at jkleinsmith. That's J-C-L-I-N-E-S-M-I-T-H. And if you're just a super giving person and want to support the podcast financially, you can make donations on the podcast website. That's anchor.fm backslash postbiblical. Special thanks to Anchor for creating such an easy-to-use podcast platform. And super special thanks to Moses Dupree for being here today. Next time we'll have a new guest to talk about a dude named Jesus. Maybe you've heard of him. Peace out. <laughs>